Each year on or about October 31st, we pause to reflect upon the importance and impact of the European Reformation, which is the foundation of Western civilization. And so today we pause from our focus and our series on 2 Samuel to focus upon that great event of the Reformation. Roll covenant reading coming from Psalm 12, Psalm 12 beginning in verse 6, Psalm 12 beginning in verse 6, 6 and 7 only for our Old Testament reading this morning, Psalm 12, stanzas 6 and 7. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the psalmist writes, The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Peter writing to us in Second Peter in chapter 1. Second Peter in chapter 1, 19 through 21. Second Peter chapter 1, 19 through 21. But the same spirit that moved the psalmist so too does Peter write. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel once again presented to us again this day. Now after years of study, service, and throughout a long period of agonizing soul-searching, if you are familiar at all with the Reformation in Germany, an obscure German monk set out to engage other theologians in what he called the 95 Thesis. Martin Luther's 95 theological points were what he considered critical for the health and well-being as well as the Reformation and legacy of the Church. His document listed a series of questions relating to the doctrines and practices that were taught and enforced by the Church of Rome, which were either contradicted by Scripture, which he understood was the pure Word of God, or could not be confirmed by Scripture. Using the Scriptures alone as the only source of truth, he presents the 95 Thesis. He constructs the 95 points in order to engage the church to answer those questions in light of the Holy Word of God. In effect, he saw Rome as a theological as well as an ecclesiastical, tyrannical despot. So when he looked at the Church of Rome, because they were manufacturing doctrines which could not be substantiated by Scripture, he saw Rome as a theological, tyrannical despot. In other words, he saw them as a dangerous, dangerous opposition to man's eternal destiny. Recognizing that the Word of God was the liberating Word of God, a liberating Word through the truth of Christ, he sought to free the German people from the tyranny of Rome. In fact, he sought to free all Christendom from the tyranny of Rome and its heresies. And so, on October 31st, in 1517, during the festival of All Saints Day, Martin Luther nailed his request for a theological debate on the door of the Wittenberg Church. That was not a rebellious move. It was something that they did. That was just common common practice back then. Now, while many today, even today, herald this event as the beginning of the European Reformation, it was only the accelerant of what had been already brewing as a small flame for years and years before when men like Huss and others began a reformation. We might even go as far back as the time of St. Augustine some 1,000 years before when he himself was a great reformer. And yet it was Luther's challenge that set all Europe in God's providential timing aflame to the truth of God's word. In fact, his challenge set aflame not only Europe, but the entire Western civilization because he had 
accurate insight to the truth of God's word and world. So, so we have to ask the question, then why at the turn of the year, around November 1st, October 31st, why place so much emphasis? Why suspend our series on the exposition of God's word to place so much emphasis on this, this event, this European Reformation? Why commemorate it each and every year? What made it so powerful? And why did it impact Western civilization in the way it did? Moreover, what gave the Reformation the endurance to last more than 500 years? Perhaps a more critical question is why has the idea of the Reformation been in decline in our modern age to the point where many even view the European Reformation and its doctrines as heretical? So let's consider for a moment the problem that the Reformers faced. Well, there was only one church back then. It was the Church of Rome. But the Church of Rome, that Roman church, had no stable foundation of truth. At the time of Luther, the Roman church devolved to such a degree that they had adopted a barrage of standards and practices that often contradicted one another to the point where no one really knew what was true and what was false. They didn't know what to believe or who to follow. Rome touted the Bible as the word of God, but that was in name only. It was a straw man. It was a wax nose that they could twist any way they wanted. The real authority in the Church of Rome was not the Holy Scripture, and it certainly was not the Christ of God. The real authority in the Church of Rome was the Pope's interpretation of the Word of God in addition to his various ecumenical councils and church polity. These interpretations by the Pope and by these councils were based loosely on Scripture, if based on Scripture at all, with an increasingly reliance on the need to retain ecclesiastical power. That is really what they wanted. It was about the rulership, the the oversight, the tyrannical ecclesiastical power over the masses through ritual and papal decrees. It was tyranny upon individuals, family, and the government as well. The result was not only the eclipsing of the scripture, the perverting of the scripture, the twisting of the scripture, but it was actually a total destruction of the truth of God's word. So what happens when there's no reliable standard of truth? What happens when we hear, well, your truth is what's true for you and my truth is what's true for me. So what happens when there's no reliable standard of truth? The idea that man, by his fallible, unfettered reason, could dictate truth always results in tyranny whether it's tyranny of the state or tyranny ecclesiastically, whether it's spiritual or temporal, it's always tyranny. Once an absolute standard of truth is lost or neglected or perverted or twisted, mankind, all of mankind, is no longer safe from the ravages of evil and wicked men. And this is what Rome's church manufactured, a tyrannical spiritual government over men's lives by dictating doctrine based upon man's reason alone. And it is this fact that made Rome and all others like her a pagan entity. My good friend and reverend Stephen Perks from Edinburgh says this, he says, paganism in all of its forms is based upon the worship of the creation rather than the creator. You see, Rome's perception of reality was a man-centered perception as if they had created reality. As if they had the, the corner on truth. Not God, but man. And once man creates a perception, a worldview, that is not defined by scripture, the hope and glory of what the world should be is lost. And this is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam thought that he could be God, that he was wiser than God. His perception was perverted. However, although Luther was the accelerant of the Reformation, He had not gone far enough in his Reformation idea. In fact, Luther's idea of Reformation stopped at the Reformation of Rome's doctrine of salvation. Because Rome's doctrine of salvation was grace plus works and whatever the Church of Rome told you you had to do. And while this was essential, that that Reformation of salvation, that doctrine that would be true, 
Well, that was essential, even critical for the reestablishment of truth and a firm foundation for the well-being of man's eternal destiny. It did not go far enough. Luther's Reformation, his ideas of the Reformation, I believe, did not go far enough. And this is important for us to understand because ideas have consequences. If an idea is truncated, there will be consequences that are truncated. Man's perception of what is true both defines him and causes him to act accordingly. Luther's idea of the church's role in the culture caused the Reformation in Germany to neglect any social, economical, political reformation. We call his idea the two-kingdom idea. The church, he believed, had its realm. The spiritual realm was part of the church, and the state had its realm, and there was no overlap, there was no uh, interaction. The church was only to deal with spiritual and moral issues, dealing with individuals and families, and of course the church had to stay out of, totally stay out of the world, outside of the spiritual realm. But it wasn't until John Calvin and his Genevan colleagues, when the European Reformation found its comprehensive impact. But this impact was not only to reform Geneva, the city of Geneva, and much of Europe at this time, but its power is attributed to the development of the entire Western civilized world. The reason why we have Western civilization is because of Genevan's work in the Reformation as it impacts all aspects of society. What the Genevan reformers set out to do was to create a comprehensive world and life biblical model based upon the Holy Scriptures so as to conform man's societal order in every aspect to the will of God. Every institution without without exemption whether it was political governmental economic everything in God's world because God was the God of the world had to come into conformity with God's truth Francis Schaeffer put it this way Christianity is not merely religious truth it is total truth The reformers understood that once biblical Christianity is liberated from its cultural captivity and man's idea of truth, it would change the world. In Nancy Percy's book, Total Truth, she explains it this way. She says, we must, and listen carefully, we must liberate Christianity from its cultural captivity, unleashing its power to transform the world. You see, If Christianity remains in the four-wall ghetto church, it is no longer able to transform the world. It is in captivity. But understand what she's saying. We need to unleash the power of the gospel. And it's always, and you know, it's never, when you read the, the New Testament, Jesus doesn't speak about the gospel. He speaks about the gospel of the kingdom. He connects it with the kingdom, where there's a king, and the king is not man, it's not the state. It's not the Pope, not the church minister. It's the Christ of God. So we are to unleash the power of the gospel because that is the transforming power that is to be unleashed upon the world, conforming it to the word of God. However, and this is important, the only way that there can be transformational change is if the scriptures are preached and then applied, and here's the key word, faithfully. Not only powerfully, but faithfully. And so the reformers of Geneva, and this is why so many, so many churches or theologians are, are negligent in speaking about the history of their own foundation, the history of the church, where they came from. The only reason why we're not Roman Catholics is because of Geneva and Calvin and men like that. And so the reformers of Geneva began by basing all ideas, all doctrines, and all practices for personal and cultural conformity to the will of God, the scriptures. It was not only their map, it was true north. Everything had to conform to God's holy word. The inerrancy and the infallibility of scripture in its original languages was the key to that reformation. The reformers understood that once the scriptures are ignored, diluted, perverted, or twisted in any way, or or even misunderstood, the, the, the entire culture would suffer. And so they adopted what was known as sola scriptura, only the scriptures. That is the source of truth. And so they added to sola scriptura, sola fide, 
only by faith, sola gratia, only by grace, soli Christus, only Christ, not the Pope, not the ecumenical councils, but only Christ, and then soli Deo Gloria, all things to the glory of God. One of the helps in coming to this conclusion of sola scriptura came from both the internal testimony of God's word as well as the declaration of holy men who had gone before them. And these reformers understood that the internal testimony of the apostles was an accurate assessment of the veracity of the word of God for many nations. And of course, they looked to Peter who declared, as we read in our New Testament reading, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but by holy men of God as they spake, because they were moved by God himself in the person of the Holy Ghost. They also looked to Paul's counsel to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul tells Timothy, all scripture, speaking mostly about the Old Testament, but all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And notice, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And he did not add this, but this was his import comprehensively. Jesus himself declared that the word of God was itself truth. Notice what he says in John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, while the internal testimony of Scripture was sufficient to convince the Reformers that they needed only to rely upon the word of truth, they also had the testimony of other Christian men who had studied the Scriptures before them. Some even during the time of the Apostles. We might call them the Apostles of the Apostles. In his dialogue with Trifo in the second century, Justin Motter, a God-fearing man, commenting on a passage in the first letter of Paul to the church at Corinth, declared this, quote, But if you have done so because you imagine that you could throw doubt on the passage, a passage of scripture that is, in order that I might say the scriptures contradicted each other, you have erred. In other words, they do not contradict each other. But I shall not venture to support or to say such a thing. And if the scripture which appears to be of such a kind be brought forward, and if there be a pretext saying that it is contrary to some other, as I am entirely convinced that no scripture contradicts another, I shall admit rather that I do not understand what is recorded and shall strive to persuade those who imagine that the scriptures are contradictory to be rather of the same opinion as myself. In other words, they don't contradict the truth. How can they contradict? And even though I see maybe there's a contradiction, it's only because I don't understand it. In addressing the non-Christian, or the likest, the second century theologian Theophilus of Antioch argued this way. He said this, Moreover, it is said that among your writers there were prophets and prognosticators, and that those wrote accurately who were informed by them. How much more then shall we know the truth who are instructed by the holy prophets who were possessed by the Holy Spirit of God? On this account, All the prophets spoke harmoniously in an agreement with one another and foretold the things that would come to pass in all the world. For the very accomplishment of predicted and already consummated events should demonstrate to those who are fond of information, yea, rather, who are lovers of truth, that those things are really true, which they declared concerning the epochs and eras before the deluge to wit, how the years have run on since the world was created until now, so as to manifest the ridiculousness of your authors and show that their statements are not true. Consider the boldness of these men. They were, they were right there on the front lines telling these wicked men that they were ridiculous men of no faith. Perhaps one of the most influential writers of his time And a constant source of sober consideration for the reformers was Augustine. Notice what he says. It seemed to me that the most disastrous consequences upon our believing that anything false is found in the sacred books. For if you once admit to such a high sanctuary of authority, one false statement as made in the way of duty, there will not be left a single sentence of these books which, appearing to anyone difficult in practice or hard to believe, may not, by the same fatal rule, be explained away as a statement in which, intentionally and under a sense of duty, the author declared what was not true. Therefore, everything written in Scripture must be believed absolutely. Here is a man, not of persuasion that the scriptures are true, but a man of conviction. Because a man of conviction cannot be persuaded otherwise. And so in order to bring order out of the chaos of human relativism, 
Natural law and natural reason, the Genevan reformers not only trusted the word of God for its total truth, but they actively, and here's where the rubber really meets the road, they actively applied it to every area of life. There was not one inch of the universe which they believed did not come under the authority of God. They understood that the world belonged to God and his intentions for the world, that world that Adam lost, were declared in his revelation. His will was to be declared clearly and precisely to the world in order to bring light out of darkness and order out of chaos by its application of the word to the world. And with this as their starting point, the reformers set out to conform all things according to the sacred scriptures beginning with the church. And what you see today is, well, I can have my spiritual life here, I can be a good person, and but I'm not going to be involved in the world because that belongs to the devil now, not to the sovereign king of the universe. And now we've relegated all that God has created to something of wickedness instead of saying, we want to buy it back. We want to bring it back to conformity to God's word. By undergirding all of their reforms, was that one doctrine which suffused all other doctrines and that was the doctrine of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. They believed that as far as the scriptures were concerned, God providentially and divinely preserved the writings of the scriptures as the testimony of himself, the testimony of his Christ, his Messiah, and the testimony of his truth. For without those things, mankind would then be left to his own devices and the world would continue in its fallen, depraved state, imploding and being destroyed ultimately. God was not going to have his world be destroyed. He was going to bring salvation. He was going to bring order out of chaos and light out of darkness. But God was not only sovereign in the preservation of his word, he was sovereign in the salvation of men and the orchestration of history. His world belonged to him. When Adam lost the world as the first Adam, Christ as the last Adam came to redeem it back. The reformers believed that the sovereignty of God extended beyond man providentially into the culture and into every institution of life. And so armed with biblical truth, armed with that sort of the spirit, armed with that revelation of God's holy truth, the Reformation became one of the most influential and powerful forces of the known world, ultimately structuring what we know today as Western civilization. Now, as we know, looking back, looking back on history, Luther's contention with the Roman Church was really only the beginning. It was only the spark that lit the flame. And so by the mid-1500s, the entire realm that realm which was known as the Holy Roman Empire, which pretty much was all of Europe, was buzzing with this, this new doctrine, this, this new found faith, which was called the Reformation. And once the power of the Reformation reached Switzerland, men like William Farrell, Vire, and Heinrich Bullinger, John Calvin, and others, Calvin became one of the figureheads among these men of the Reformation movement. But he was not alone. These men were right there with him. He was only one of the figureheads. Calvin, however, almost single-handedly, because of his academic skill, he almost single-handedly set the stage so that the Puritans could bring Reformation truths to bear down upon the new world, a new culture with Christ at the center. Now once Calvin settled in Geneva, he, along with his colleagues, immediately began the work of cultural reformation. He understood that the reformation of the church had to initiate that cultural reformation. And that was absolutely necessary. If any comprehensive cultural reform could be accomplished, the church had to be fixed. And have I said before, I'll say it again, I'll say it until the day I die. The culture is the report card of the church. If you see the culture going down the tubes, if it's going to hell in a handcart, it's the church's fault because they have failed to declare the truth of God's word comprehensively to men and nations. So armed with scripture, Calvin and his colleagues began the work. But that work was not done in a vacuum. Calvin's efforts were multifaceted. And if we could take a page out of history, and if we could learn from some of these men that came before us, 
we would do well. Calvin understood that the church had to be reformed. The family had to be educated accordingly. Families had to be liberated from Rome's doctrine in order to live pleasing to God, culturally relevant in the world. He knew that the children needed a Christian education. Children who are Christian need a Christian education. And so education was high on Calvin's list of institutions that needed reform. He saw fathers and mothers as the stewards of Christ's legacy. The Reverend Dr. Joseph Moorcrest comments, he says, Christian parents, as mediators of grace and truth under Christ, are to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, according to Ephesians 6, verse 4. The word nurture involves the idea of education. The word is also used as a discipline in Hebrews 12, verse 5. In 1 Corinthians, the word admonition implies counseling. So then, the threefold ministry of parents is Christian education, Christian discipline, and Christian counseling. And so once settled at Geneva, Calvin focused upon church reform, but he also focused upon Christian education. He added to that government, law, and economics as a concern usury in business. Notice, he had a, a full-orbed idea of what the truth of God's word should impact. He was comprehensive in everything that he did. And his plan was so comprehensive, he wanted to reform every aspect of Geneva's culture according to the word of God. He, along with his colleagues, established an ecclesiastical court system, weekly meeting as a court, working closely with Geneva City magistrates. Scripture was his blueprint for comprehensive kingdom action. His tactics were well-structured, tackling the important areas of Genevan society, all of which now provides for us a model of what we might do in our own community, even a small community like we have here. We use history. We look at the old paths where the good way is, and we walk therein. We look at how, how they structured Geneva, even in the face of licentiousness. Geneva was not a happy place for a Christian man or for the reformers. It was a place of lasciviousness, adultery, fornication, and all manner of wickedness. And yet Calvin said, we will reform. In his effort to reform and strengthen the church, Calvin set up a teaching schedule, which if you read about his teaching schedule, it was almost superhuman. Preaching daily, one week on and one week off, Calvin taught from the Word using the expository method going through each of the books of the Bible, verse by verse, verse by verse. And the way he was able to go on these, these bunny trails, these rabbit trails, is when he came to a verse that he could apply in several different ways, he then went on those trails. But it was expository. Both his preaching and his Bible studies, he was able to touch on every area of culture. He was able to address every topic. He was able to address every concern, every issue of human life under God. And many of the modern ministers of our day, if you've visited any churches, perhaps their message lasts 30 minutes. Many of those messages are anecdotal because they're afraid that they might bore their congregation. And while this is a sin of the minister... I believe it's a sin of the minister. It is more a sin of the members since they are unwilling to bear up with anything like what was customary during the Reformation. You see, we must pray for a renewed hunger for the Word of God. You know, during the Puritan era, when the minister would go for more than an hour, in fact, there was one minister, he was going on and on and on and expounding and expounding and admonishing and counseling. And he realized, he looked at his, his time clock and he realized, I've been preaching for almost 90 minutes, maybe even more. And he's paused from his message and he said, Congregation, my brothers and sisters, I'm so sorry. I've just been going on and on and on. I, I guess we should close. And there was an uproar in the congregation screaming, No, no, continue, continue. We need to hear the word of God. This is hunger. This is the hungering and the thirsting that we lack today. With the help of Pierre Vire, Calvin was able to establish a college along with a seminary, because Calvin was a future thinker. He was preparing the next generation 
of ministers and fathers and mothers and young people for the challenges that lay ahead in addition to teaching the youth and focusing on the education of both the old and the young. He understood that as the family went, so did the church and then the entire nation. But today's ministers, perfectly comfortable with allowing their members to remain ignorant of deep theology. Well, I know Jesus and I'm, I'm fine. I don't need to know those deep things. It's just too boring for me. They're perfectly comfortable with allowing the children to continue attending government schools in direct rebellion against God's commandments. They're perfectly comfortable with everything that God says, don't do this because there are consequences behind your actions. William Monter in his book, Calvin's Geneva, explains it this way. Notice what he says. He says, quote, Calvin's program of teaching was enforced in Geneva by a very thorough indoctrination. You know, we, we list that word, indoctrination, we say, ooh, you're indoctrinating the children. That's right. Here's the word of God. This is what you must believe. This is truth. He continues, Genevan children were drilled on their catechism every Sunday noon until they could repeat from memory the essentials of their faith. Adults, too, were expected to undergo the same course of religious instruction. As late as 1557, the consistory discovered five old men who still could not give an account of their faith and ordered them to hire a tutor and learn their catechism before the next public communion. And I can tell you this, if they didn't learn it before communion, they would not be given communion. He continues, in January 1549, Geneva's pastors and government and government agreed that great troubles were descending on their city to forestall these calamities, they decided to announce to all the heads of the families that everyone should attend church more regularly and that children and servants should attend catechism. Think about that today. Your congressman turns around and gives a decree at the house floor and he says, now we're, we're headed for a calamity. Everyone should go to church more, attend catechism classes, study the Bible more. Could you imagine it coming from the White House? I don't. I can't. But this is what was happening in Geneva because of the influence of men with, with grit. Men with grit that understood that that's the only way out to bring the truth of God to bear upon the nation. Calvin's seminary and college became the standard of reformational learning. After being educated at Geneva, Thomas Bodley returned to Oxford he goes to Geneva, he's educated by Calvin, he returns to Oxford to establish a theological library which was probably the first research library of its kind. Such was the influence of Calvin on others within the ranks of Reformed scholars and theologians. But this was not all that Calvin focused upon. His, as I said, was a full-orbed reorientation of human life in addition to preaching, teaching, writing and updating his institutes, writing his commentaries and his an incredible wealth of correspondences, both domestic and international, he also, and here it is, he also involved himself in the affairs of state. And he didn't wait for the civil magistrates to call on him. He injected himself into the political, legal and economic life of Geneva. And it was by his influence by both word and deed, that structured Geneva and made it the Christian model that it was. In contrast to this Reformation practice, today's ministers actively shun any involvement in politics, any involvement in government, any involvement in legal affairs, adopting a Lutheran two-kingdom heresy of non-involvement pietism. Oh, we're just going to hide out here and wait for Jesus. We just wait for Jesus now. And he'll take care of it. Calvin also insisted that the ministers of the gospel, provided they were God-fearing men, provided that they were men of virtue, men of their word, men of conviction, he insisted that these types of ministers were to be given due respect as men and servants of God for the glory of God and for the good of the people, as well as for the Genevan Republic. And in this way, he commanded respect from both magistrate and parishioner, for all those that faithfully expounded the word of God. As ministers of the gospel, and even as priests of God, we should, if we are faithfully executing the office of our duty as priests of God, we must command respect. When we go before the magistrates, when I, as a minister of God, go before the magistrates, I am speaking in the name of God. And as I 
of course, have to respect them as much as that goes. They must respect the Word of God, even if they don't respect me. But Calvin has insisted that these ministers who were faithful had to be respected. Far too many of today's ministers, sadly, and I say this with very, very deep sorrow, and it gives me no pleasure to say this, many of today's ministers are unworthy of respect as a result of their abject worldliness, even even after they've sinned and, and continue in sin, and, and, and of course, that takes them away from any kind of respect that's due. So as a result, they are not given the respect by the community that they should have. And if they're not given the respect of the community, how can they wield the power of the gospel? People laugh at them. Oh, this one here, he had an affair with his, his secretary. And that one over there, he's doing this. And this one over there is involved in this thing and the other thing. How do they respect people like that? And the gospel is diminished. And the word of God is blasphemed. Harold Huffle, in his book, The Christian Polity of John Calvin, observes, Calvin had insisted that his parishioners at Geneva submit to their ministers even in his absence after his brief departure to Strasbourg. In an open letter to Genevan's council of June 25th, 1539, the Genevans were to treat their ministers with the obedience and reverence due to the Lord's messengers and to maintain communion. Notice, he keeps telling them, don't be slack in your church attendance. Go there with reverence. Go there as the solemn assembly dictates. So in order to cement ministerial reverence and authority in the Genevan Republic, Calvin formed what was called the Company of Pastors. This group became the leading religious force in Geneva with Calvin. Not as the chief. Calvin wasn't the chief. He was just one of its members. This was a group of ministers called the Company of Pastors. And through this unity, through this membership of clergymen, their mission was to encourage ethical conformity to the licentious people of Geneva who had been running wild before the reformers took Geneva's pulpits. They wanted to conform the people. So they put together this, this group of ministers. As William Monter observes, he says, quote, Calvin was not so much a personality as he was a mind, an idea. Basically, he lived for his work, teaching, preaching, and writing. His work was essentially moral and intellectual, and his authority within Geneva was essentially moral and intellectual. In most cases, Calvin's influence is based upon the fact he knew more about something than anybody else. I would have you know more about something than anybody else. As William Tyndale once said to the Pharisees of his day and the priests of his day, I hope that one day... A plowboy has more knowledge in his little finger than all of your counsel combined. He knew the scriptures. The scriptures are powerful. They cut to the quick. It is the sword of the spirit. They are the truth of God's word. He continues. In most cases, Calvin's influence is based upon the fact that he knew more about something than anybody else, expressed himself about it more readily, and seldom changed his mind. His mental equipment was peculiarly excellent for a 16th century man. So his mind and the capacity to understand and disseminate the word of God without, without apology, with courage, is what made him such a powerful force in Geneva, which ultimately stretched far into the world. I remember reading a story about Calvin. He fenced the table from some of the men in, the, in Geneva. They were known fornicators, known adulterers, and they had come to the table of the communion table, and he said, I will not give you communion. I will not give you communion. So they called on the civil magistrates. The civil magistrates said, oh, they're our buddies. Let's, let's just give them the communion. He said, no, no, no. And at one point, he said, they, they came at him with swords and, and daggers. And he tore open his shirt. He said, go, take me. But you're not getting communion. This is a man of conviction. This is a man that we need today. We need men like this today. He tore open his shirt. He said, go ahead, you can kill me. But you're still not getting communion in my hands. And back then, you see, today, how have the mighty fallen today? Okay, I'll just go and get communion somewhere else today. But back then, you didn't get communion in Geneva. It meant that you were barred from heaven. Excommunication was something very serious. Today, it's, it's no big deal because people don't understand. 
Montour explains, he says, Calvin, in concert with the company of pastors and his intimate colleagues, were able to monopolize Geneva's only mass medium, sermons. Sermons were one principal form of public communication in the 16th century. And in Geneva, sermons were remarkably frequent. Some people have trouble going once a week. They had sermons being preached every day in the morning and in the evening. And then, of course, on the Lord's Day. In the 1550s, Monta continues, sermons were being preached in her four churches on an average of a dozen times a week. The effects of Calvin's sermons and those of his colleagues is, of course, impossible to measure precisely, but it must have been immense. Although Calvin would deal with the magistrates and his company of pastors as a pastor himself, he dealt with both groups distinctly. To the one, he presented himself as an ecclesiastical overseer and watchman over the affairs of the magistrate and their safely office. He was like Aaron was to Moses. He would counsel them. But to the other, he would present himself as a beloved father and a colleague in the glorious effort to build the kingdom of God. Approximately one month before his death, In the spring of 1564, Calvin called his bedside first the magistrates of the city and then separately his beloved company of pastors. Now when the magistrates arrived, he greeted them and he thanked them for the unwarranted honor which they had bestowed upon him. And they knew that he was a man to be reckoned with and they tapped into that because he was changing the world. He was bringing order out of chaos that Rome had brought into Geneva. So they honored him. And of course, he was a humble man, Calvin was. He confessed that if he had not always been easy to deal with, or even if he had not done properly what he should have done, they would consider that and consider that he meant well and that they would forgive him. Taking a portion of Calvin's remarks, Monta writes this, Calvin especially asked the magistrates to forgive him his overly vehement affections and other vices which God has put in him. Otherwise, he protested before God and the magistrates that he had always tried to preach the word of God purely and without error as his calling demanded and that he had tried to avoid the snares of the devil who perverts scripture through men's fickle minds. Next, Calvin gave a small word of encouragement to the magistrates. Whenever you feel menaced, he said this. Notice what he's saying to the magistrates. And you have to understand, for him to say something like this, he had a relationship. Whether it was good or bad, he had a relationship. Notice what he says. Always think that God wishes to be honored and that only he can preserve and maintain states, nations. Only God can preserve the nation, provided he's honored. The opposite, of course, I'm sure Calvin would agree is true. When God is dishonored by nations, the nations cannot continue. Monter continues, he says, citing the example of David who had sinned in the midst of prosperity. He observed that, quote, we have good reason to humble ourselves and to hide under God's wings. Calvin further told them this, quote, if the Lord gives us prosperity, we rejoice But when we are besieged by a hundred different evils on all sides, we must not fail to put our trust in Him. Whenever something important happens, know that God is testing us in order to humble us. See, what is happening in America right now is God is testing us to humble us, that we might turn to Him, and that the ministers of the gospel in all the lands, in all the states, and in all the countries of the world might humble themselves before God because the apostasy in in America today, is not just American apostasy. It is universal. It is global. It it suffuses every nation on the face of the earth. But it is for our testing so that we might be humbled. Notice what he says. If we want to preserve our present condition, we must not dishonor the seat into which he has put us, for he has said that he will honor those who honor him and will cast down those who scorn him. I say this in order that we follow his word more carefully than ever. For we are still a long way from keeping it as fully as we should, end quote. Calvin then proceeded to admonish each of the magistrates for some of their bitterness and missteps. Can you imagine? Congressman so-and-so, 
Senator so-and-so. City father here, city father there. I admonish you in the name of Christ to put away your bitterness and mend your ways, repent of your missteps. Could you imagine ministers today en masse where there's only standing room only in the courts of halls of justice? It was in Calvin's day. Why can't it be in our day? Because it takes grit, it takes conviction, it takes courage. So he admonishes them and he tells them this. When annoyed, we should not give the rein to our passions. Everyone should work according to his station and faithfully employ whatever God has given him in order to maintain this republic. Calvin then asked the magistrates that he be excused from all further responsibilities on account of his illness. He closed with prayer and then he bid them farewell. He shook the hands of the members in good faith. There were 25 members of the small council and then he departed because he was at the end of his days. The day after that, Calvin received the company of pastors. These were his confidants. He brought them to his home for the last time. And his message to his colleagues was of an entirely different caliber than that of the magistrates. He rehearsed before them his trials and his battles that he had faced at Geneva and encouraged them to continue in the faith which was given to them through the Holy Scriptures. And then he encouraged them. And notice what he said to them. He told them that they were going to face wondrous battles for the faith. You are going to face wondrous battles for the faith. He knew that these younger men, when he departed, were going to face incredible battles. Incredible battles. But he called them wondrous because they were for the wonder of God. They were for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. And he said this, Thus I have been in the midst of battles and you will experience ones not less but greater for you are in a perverse and unhappy nation. And although she has some honorable men, the nation is perverse and wicked. Think about what he is saying. We could say this today. We could say this in the people's house. We could say this and we could scream it from the housetops. We could say this very thing today. We are in the midst of a perverse and wicked nation even though we have within that nation some honorable men. He continues. Notice what he says. He says, You will have your hands full after God has taken me away. For even though I am as nothing, I know that I have prevented many tumults that might have taken place in Geneva. But take courage and fortify yourselves for God will use this church and will uphold it. I assure you that He will preserve it. As for my doctrine, I have taught faithfully and God has given me the grace to write which I have done as faithfully as I could. I have not corrupted a single passage of Scripture nor knowingly twisted it. As for our internal affairs, you have elected Monsieur Theodore Beza to take my place. Take care to help him for his burden is heavy and so difficult that he must necessarily be overcome by it. Take care to support him. Now let's give me, I'll give you a footnote here. Theodore Beza, one of the greats, applying Calvin's ideas to Geneva, a great man. Trials and tribulations, especially during the plague, where he contracts the real plague, not the COVID-19, but a real plague, where his wife succumbs, dies, but he continues in the faith. He was a man of conviction, upheld by the grace of God. Where are those men today? Few and far between, I tell you that. Calvin continues, he says, As for him, as for Beza, I know he has a good will and will do what he can. May everyone keep his obligations. We don't even talk about obligations anymore. It's whatever we want. But we have an obligation, a covenantal obligation, a covenantal duty to do God's will. Notice, May everyone keep his obligations, not only to this church, but also to the city, which we have promised to serve in adversity as well as prosperity, so that each man may continue his calling. Take care also that there be no teasing nor harsh words among you, since glibs will sometimes be tossed about. For even though this be in jest, the heart will hold bitterness. Those things are trifles, and besides, they are not Christian. So refrain from them, and live in good harmony and sincere friendship. Calvin then continued to rehearse for the company of pastors, 
some of the issues facing Geneva and how their sister church at Bern had betrayed the church at Geneva because he stated this. He said, they have always feared me more than loved me and still fear me more than love me and have always been afraid that I will meddle with their Eucharist. You see, they were more Romanized. But then, obviously, he wasn't well. He wasn't feeling well. He abruptly concluded his speech. He shook hands with each of the company of ministers. And you just, you just can't help but thinking about the scene. Many of them bursting into tears, knowing that they would see him no more, and bidding his farewell. Less than a month later, Calvin was dead. And yet, more than 500 years later, his legacy and his doctrine, his passion, his stick-to-itiveness, his, his future thinking lives on. Even though today it's eclipsed from, from much of mainstream Christendom. And yet the legacy of Calvin and the Reformation was not actually his. You know, we say Calvinism. Calvin would be turning over in his grave if we called the Reformation Calvinism or the doctrines of grace Calvinism. No, it was God's Reformation. Now by this time, the new world of America was being colonized and the Reformed doctrine was being introduced into the new world, mainly through the work of Calvin's ministers, Beza and many others. And by the early 1600s, Calvin's children, the Puritans, would continue that legacy. But this time, the Reformation would take roots across the Atlantic Ocean in a place called the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the beginning of the America that once was. This is our history. This is our history, which the modern church and the state and the nation and the world has chosen to conveniently forget. But it is our task to remind them and the world that this was and is even now the bedrock of Western civilization and the only hope of liberty under God. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen and amen.